0: Let's just jump in. Revelation 13, the whole chapter. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and, a, and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people, language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with uh, a sword, with a sword he must be slain." Oh, sorry, must he be slain? Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no, uh, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has the, under, the has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. Bum, bum, bum. Right? <laughs> I say that because we do the Bible study every week, and and. The moment I read this in the Bible study, there's 18 verses here, but immediately people started saying, what is the 666 about? What's that about? What's that about? What's that about? We'll get there. Okay, Let's, just, let's try to take this like we would an elephant, right? one bite at a time. And let me begin as usual in a place that seems in no way connected. Um, the pyramids. You've seen the great pyramids of Giza, and they were created and built, uh, this great pyramid specifically at Giza, was built by a man named Khufu. And Khufu, um, obviously exerted great power, and there's this historian named Susan Wise Bauer. She teaches at William and Mary University. And here's what she says about Khufu. Khufu mobilized one of the largest workforces in the world. Even if the laborers were not, were not reduced to abject slavery, the king's ability to recruit such an enormous number of workers keenly illustrated his ability to oppress his people. The pyramids themselves stand as signposts to that power. What she means... Is the how do you convince thousands, hundreds of thousands, arguably millions of people to give their entire lives 27 years to your dream, to building your dream, especially in the ancient world when life was short? So, we're not talking about 27 years and you can move on to a second career. So, how is it that you do that? Well, the answer, says Susan Weisbauer, and history and the Bible is. It's the 2 fists of power and persuasion. That's the way the pharaohs were able to do what they did when they built all these incredible things. Now, power, of course, is required. The state has to have enough power to force its will when needed. So it needs raw power. But raw power alone isn't sufficient to build the pyramids. You need something else, you need persuasion, you need a story. And the story of Egypt, and the building of the pyramids is directly tied to the myth of the pharaoh being an incarnate god. So once upon a time, the pharaohs were understood to be gods incarnate. They were were sun god Ra on earth. They were Osiris. They were Horus. But over time, that begins to be chipped away. You know, you begin to see things, right? You see them eating, and you're like, hmm, would a god have to eat? You see them dying. You see them getting sick. And over time... They start to lose it, and you see, actually, in the history of Egypt, pharaohs go from being the incarnate gods to being the sons of gods, to being, you know, pretty smart guys, to being humans. And interestingly, the trajectory of pyramid building in Egypt coincides with the strength of that myth. Once, when you see, when, you, when, when the world thinks that the, yeah, you are a god and the gods support you, they're a little less likely to rebel and to assassinate you in your sleep. And they're willing to work because they know they can run afoul of a powerful state and the god excuse me, and the gods. But as they start to see them as humans, you begin to see in the history of Egypt, the pyramids get smaller, fewer, and less intricate until they eventually disappear, because then the pharaohs are just trying to hang on. In fact, if you know the history of Egypt, it disintegrates into dozens of kings all over the land and so this connection, this tie between the power and the persuasion of a state is important because when we look now at this passage here, we're seeing this exact same thing on display. In chapter 12, we're told that there's this dragon, Satan, and he has, he's bent on harming and hindering God's people and his creation on earth. And chapter 13 then says, here's how he does it. The way he exercises his control over the earth and how he's trying to, to carry out his plan is through the the two fists of power and persuasion. And each beast is a different one. The first one is power, the second is persuasion. But all of them are connected. And so, when we look at this, we're going to see three simple things. We're going to look, consider the power of the of Satan, the power of the beast, the persuasion of the beast, and then lastly, the perseverance of the church. How do we survive? And not just survive, but thrive in the midst of this power and persuasion. Okay? So let's do that. First one is power. So the first beast, who is this beast? First question we have to answer right away. And as always, stop. Let's not, let's not try to make something out of these weird, bizarre images until we have looked and seen what the Old Testament tells us. Because what you find throughout Revelation, and here is no exception, is that John is seeing things not originally. He's seeing what other people throughout the Old Testament have seen before, but he's seeing them sometimes in the new twist. And so when you go back and see where these visions occur at first, they help you understand what they mean now. And so when you go to, to Daniel chapter 7, you see Daniel has his dream, and he sees four creatures. And these four creatures, unsurprisingly, have the body of, the, of a lion, another one a bear, another a leopard, and the, third, the fourth one is indistinguishable. He doesn't really say what it is, but it does have ten horns. So then, when we turn here, we see that John is seeing the exact same thing, but he's seeing it all rolled up into one. They're not four separate creatures, but this this vision of four different things has become one in this in John's image in John's vision. Now we have the benefit here of the Bible telling us exactly what this means, because Daniel goes on to say what these beasts are, and he says it in chapter 7, verse 17 and 25, so I'll put it on the screen. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time. So, John or Daniel clearly says, hey, what I'm seeing are nations, they're empires. Specifically, it's Babylon, the Persians, the Medes, and the Greeks. So he sees these, every beast that comes out, he says these are nations, they're empires. And so when John sees it, what he is saying is, this beast is one, it, it represents state power. These are nations. So one of the, the fists that the dragon will use to oppress and hinder the God's people on earth is the state the government, the apparatus. Hold on, conspiracy theorists, Well, don't go too fast, we'll get there. But this is clearly what John is getting at, that this is a state power. Now, what do these states do, however? And John says something quite interesting, and it's similar to what Daniel says, so it's not inconsistent. He says the primary primary, uh, issue with the state, at least in this first beast's description, is blasphemy. Blasphemy is, of course, speaking unreverently about a God. That's what blasphemy generally is. But in this, in this sense, what blasphemy is, is trying to become God. It's every time we try to... Well, let me just use Darrell Johnson. Darrell Johnson is a New Testament scholar and a pastor. Here's what he says about this. The beastliness of political power is born of blasphemy. Political powers do not set out to be best, bestial. They set out to be their own master. And in the process, they turn bestial. No one can be God but God. When the state seeks to be God, it does not become divine, it becomes demonic. And so, when Paul in Romans says, the government is good, it's there, it's meant to be a help to you, it's meant to to be an agent of human flourishing, he's right, that's what it's meant to be. But it only is so, so long as it remains under God. You know the American Constitution? One people, under God? The idea is it's like this umbrella, and you sit. And so long as we are under God, we're okay. The moment the state, or anybody for that matter, steps outside of God, from under Him, you become blasphemous. And the reason is, the moment you do that, you start saying, I am the authority, not God. And so, when he says that blasphemy is what comes out of the state, out of this, this beast, he's saying, this is exactly what nations tend to do the more they turn from away from God, the more they flounder, and they cease to be agents of human flourishing. And you see this quite directly in what they do. You see, when, government, when I say governments want to become God, understand that it's not that overt. What they're trying to do is they use the trappings of God to try to make it look as if they are the sole wards of truth, peace, justice, and everything. And so in this passage, you actually see it very clearly in the mimicry, the beast does things that's very close to being like the lamb. And you'll see it throughout this passage. So, for instance, he is wounded, but then lives again. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Not just that, he demands worship from others as well. Aside from that, do you notice it says that the beast has authority over people, nations, tribes, and tongues. Isn't that interesting? Because isn't that what the lamb has authority over? And so what you're seeing is this... That, God, that the Satan, that the dragon, uses state power and comes and says, I am going to dominate, and I'm slowly I'm going to take this state in such a way that the world's powers will always inevitably err away from God. Every one of them. And you'll see some cautions in a minute about this. And as they do it, they almost seem unassailable, it says. You notice that the worship they give him says, who can battle, who can make war against this beast? Is interesting, because Isaiah says it six or seven times about God. Who is like our God? But they're saying it about the state, about these nations, about these empires. And if, you disagree, if, you, if you're not sure, just look at history. Look at how the Roman Empire called itself, La Cita Eterna, right? The city eternal, the eternal city. It's never going anywhere, right? We, if you want to be safe, terrible world, pagans, Goths, Visigoths, join the Roman Empire. You'll be safe. Hitler, in the Third Reich, you know why he called it the Third Reich? Because he believed the Germans had three stages. Well, he was the third. The first was the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, 800 AD. Then came Otto von Bismarck, reuniting these fragmented German states. And then comes the Third Reich, the third age of Germany. And it would last how long? Do you remember how long he said? Thousand years. thousand years. How long did it last? Twelve. Twelve years, if that. So, you see this propensity. Not just that, how about the British Empire? Bless them. We're part of that, right? We're still part of the Commonwealth-ish. And the sun never sets on the British Empire. You see how it boasts of itself. Look at America. Don't they always seem, for those who are living under them, unassailable? Even if you like them, don't you think, boy, what would the world be like if America wasn't the superpower? You can't even imagine it, probably. And this is what nations will do unintentionally. They may not know it, but what happens when they step away from God is they start to say, if you want safety world, let America come. We'll make it safe. We'll bring democracy. You want freedom? We've got that for you. And slowly but surely, it chips away at the identity of who God is, and it says, come on everybody, start worshiping this beast instead. And we'll see more specific examples of that in a minute. And the apparatus, the tools that the state uses, are pretty straightforward. You see them all through the Old Testament, New Testament, and in our world. Laws, media, schools, police. All of it can be used to slowly turn the tide against God. Right? So, let me jump away from this for one second. Now we have power. So the first fist is power, this beast that comes. The first thing is power, but then you have the second beast that shows up. And who is this? And here's what you need to know about this one. Image is everything. Image is everything for the second beast. He is the propaganda minister for the first beast. He is, in fact, you see it immediately. The very first description is, he looks like a lamb, but sounds like a dragon. Isn't that interesting? He looks like one thing, but sounds differently. And I mentioned to the Bible study group on Tuesday, it reminded me of an old Flintstones episode. Who remembers this Flintstones episode? When Fred... Uh, the aliens come and they have all these multiple Freds, right? And Fred walks around saying, Yaba, Baba, do, right? <laughs> now, I brought that up because, you know what's funny? Everybody thought this is just Fred, except Wilma. Wilma, who knows him best, said, Gosh, something isn't quite right about him. He looks like Fred, he's saying Fred things, but it's not quite right. And the same idea is what the second beast comes. What his job is, is to breathe life. In fact, it's, I mean, I'll just quote what it says. First job of this beast, to make the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. That's what it says in the text. His job is to say, look at how good this beast is. Worship him, worship him. So he, to his power, he, he is then given authority. He says, the dragon gives them authority and says, use everything I've got to win people away from God and to these other empires. to the the human kingdom as opposed to God. Take it all, use your miracles if you have to, tell them to make idols, do everything you can do. Do whatever you need to do to drag them away. And then it says he succeeds, succeeds in giving breath to the image of the beast. Interesting, interesting. Here we have the Holy Trinity, right? The dragon mimics the father. The first beast mimics the son with his seven horns, or seven heads, like the the lamb is described in chapter 5. And then we have this, Beast, the third one that breeds life into the, into the second, into the, into the first beast. Who breeds life? The spirit. So you see the mimicry again of God, the unholy Trinity showing up in these beasts. And he pours himself into the world and he says, I'm going to use lies, deceit, miracles, worship, whatever it takes to get everyone to worship something other than the God of the Bible. Anything. You ever notice that the state has very few problems with any other religion? Right? Christianity they got a problem with. It's not surprising. It's, it's been that way for a long time. Now, we have to get on the question of this beast, because this second beast's mark says he's going to mark people. and He's going to mark them specifically. Now, I'll, I'll talk more at the end about this, but let me say one thing quickly. Is this a literal mark? Stamp, barcode, uh, what have we talked about? Everything, right? You pick something. The mark has been everything. I don't think so. And this is why. Remember earlier we talked about the 144,000 that were sealed by the Lamb? And we made it clear that the seal was the Holy Spirit. Right? Paul makes that clear. So it's not a visible stamp, you know, this is Jesus' people, not Jesus' people, it's not that. So if that's the case, in order to be consistent hermeneutically, as we're interpreting, we have to realize he's not talking about a physical mark here. When he speaks about being marked on the hands and on the head, what he is talking about is your mind and your heart and your hands, your activity. Everything you will do will be stamped with the character of the beast. In the same way, the 144,000, their character was stamped by behaving like the lamb. And those who are this way, who are stamped by the beast in this symbolic way, you'll know them because they're the ones who will slander God and His people, but also they'll have really, their life will go pretty well because they'll never run afoul of the state because the state supports them, because the state is doing the same thing. And so, this mark of the beast, this is one of the ways he's doing this, is he tells the world, this is who you worship, this is who is God and who isn't, and those who go along with it will do just fine. And those who don't, of course, will have a problem. And he'll use power, as I've said, lies, deceit, miracles, all these things. And the point is very clearly being made of this. The state needs religion in order to survive. Now, let me show you some history and then up to the present. Let's start with the Roman Empire. Did you know the Roman emperors very rarely asked to be treated as divine? Very few of them said, Worship me, very few. But we see everywhere, priests and cities vying for the opportunity to worship them anyway. We see competitions between the cities, I mentioned this during the letters, where the cities were competing to have the temple for the emperor in their their city. It was a great honor. So what we find in Rome is, now the emperors don't say no, right? They don't say no. But what you find is that they know that their power relies on having a good story. And if they can use the trappings of religion to give them that power, they will. And this has always been the case. In fact, I won't get into it too detailed, but let me be very clear. Rome didn't want to kill Jesus. The church did. Religion did. Israel did, right? Over and over, Pilate says he's not guilty. It's the religious people who want him dead. And so we see, even in his time, you're seeing religion as being the ones who are driving this bus. They're the propaganda ministers, they're the ones pushing the state. So this is a a great, interesting little partnership. But let me move even further. Um, I could do lots of history, but I won't do it all. I'll start with my dad. My dad left Portugal, if you know the history of Portugal, because um, he ran afoul of the state. Portugal was run from 1927 to 74 by a right-wing authoritarian government under a guy named Antonio Salazar. Salazar understood that if he was to have semi-fascist, small f, maybe not authoritarian power, he needed to have the churches okay. So he comes into this holy alliance, as he would call it, with the church and says, hey, I'll let you keep doing what you're doing if you tell people that we're all right. And so my dad, as most young Portuguese people at the time realized, this is bunk, it's terrible, so he leaves the country. Well, he first gets in a lot of trouble, then he leaves the country. Um, and then when he gets here, he's an atheist because he has seen the way the state requires religion and the religious are happy to, to work with the state no matter how oppressive, so long as they keep their position. And this mixture of church and state happens all through history, continually. And to the south of the border, it's happening even more so than here. We're a little I don't say advanced because that makes it sound like we're better. We're not. We're just further along the uh, secular line here. And in America, there's a guy named Michael Horton. He's a theologian. I don't think he's a pastor. I think he's just a theologian. And he tells a story about American uh, Christian, um, uh, Christian nationalism and how the church has gotten to such a place in his country, and you see it seeping here, and we've seen it if you're watching this stuff, how the church and the state have gotten so near that there's many, many millions of Christians in America who are under the impression that they're almost the same thing. And he tells a story about when he's at a conference, and here is what he says. Back in November 2015, I ate dinner with one of President Trump's biggest supporters. At the time, of course, Trump was only one candidate among, uh, among many in the Republican primary. And I did not understand the depth of passion among his supporters. This person explained to me that America is the last hope of Christianity. And I thought I simply misheard or, what he had got, or he got the order wrong. So I corrected him. You mean that Christianity is the last hope of America, right? He said, no, America is the last hope of Christianity. Well, that's Christian nationalism. And this error stamps not just the American church, it's here, it's actually at Redeemer. I know people here who are under the impression that if America ceased to exist, Israel would be wiped off the face of the earth. My friends, nothing depends on America. Nothing depends on you or on Canada. It depends on Christ and Christ alone. And this is so basic Christianity, but you see how easy it is to fall into that. And I'll explain why in a minute, why we do it, and all of us. And I'm guilt, We're all guilty of it. We all drift unknowingly and, and happily into this lie. And now, let me go even further. Uh, my American friends, again, there's this other pastor named Cody. Spells it with a T, but it's Cody. Pinkney. He's in North Carolina, and he is preaching his sermon just before July 4th. I guess the Sunday was on July 3rd. And here's what he... Put, I mean, I, I, people like this exist, it makes me feel better because he hammers this poor congregation. Listen, this is what he says. Let me ask this. On July 3rd, how many Christian congregations are reciting the U.S. Pledge of Allegiance during their worship service, pledging allegiance to an earthly government during a service that should be God-centered, that should be devoted to honoring Him? performing an act of obedience to one's country's government during a service that should celebrate the unity of God's people across all countries, across all tribes. Christians should be loyal to their country. In the right context, they should pledge allegiance to different countries' governments, but a service devoted to worshiping God is not that context. And if we face a very sorry, and if we face a very great da- sorry, we face, actually, a very great danger if we confuse civil religion with the worship of Jesus Christ. We face the danger of worshiping the beast. We are thus greatly dishonoring Jesus Christ. He's right. And Canada is not that we're, we're not much better than America. So let's not ever think we are better than any country. Because how many people here, and I'm not talking about you, i am talking. let's think broadly in the country, are under the impression that whatever happens in the next election will determine the freedom and safety and continuation of the church. It's not true. I don't care who's elected. The church will close when Christ says so and not sooner. Very simple. But do you see, and I know people believe this, even at this church, because I know you've broken up some of your families and fellowship because of your views about vaccines and about governments, which tells me you have been misled a little, at very least a little. If you're willing to break up your family because of a political view, you have drifted towards worshipping the wrong thing. Oh, thank you. Pentecostal for a moment. (laughs) Love it. No, but I love it, you see, and I understand that. Please don't think I'm saying I'm any better. Okay? If you don't support Sporting Lisbon as a soccer team, I have a problem with you. <laughs> okay? But it's a danger we have to be very conscious of. One of the things I didn't put in here, which I, I don't want to keep you long, but let me say this one thing. When Jesus has that little spot where the Pharisees attack him and say, Who's, should we pay taxes to, to Caesar or not? Right? Everybody knows that passage. Do you ever notice Jesus does something so subtle, but so brilliant. He says, Give me a denarius. Whose image is on it? Why does he say, Give me a denarius? He doesn't have one. What he is saying is, I am not implicated in the economic and social system like you are. I don't, need, I don't have the coin, but all of you borrow, sell, worship. You all work. You all earn. You participate in this, this, the economy. And as a result, it is imperative that you know what belongs to Caesar and what doesn't. And you have to be shrewd. And that is key of what he is saying in there. And this is vital for us here in this, in this what we're, what's going on here. That we need to know, have you noticed, and I made some people angry, a little, maybe a little angry, because there's no flags here anymore. You notice that? That's on purpose. We will have no flags in here that belong to other nations except for Canada Day and when missionaries are visiting. Not because I have a problem with Canada. My family were immigrants. This is a wonderful country. It's because this is where we worship God. Nobody else. You have no problem being told to worship the state out there. You're not going to hear it here, hopefully. And it's not because we hate our country. It's because the moment you are saved, you become a citizen of heaven. And as a result, I have more in common with a Christian in Mozambique than I have with a non-believer down the street from me. I am bound eternally to them. I am here as an ambassador. And an ambassador, if I go to China as an ambassador for Canada, I must know that culture. I must know its history, its art, I must speak its language fluently. But I must never forget that I am there to preserve and promote the rights of Canada in that country. I don't become Chinese. In the same way, I'm a Christian. I know the culture, I engage it, I love it, I care for it. But make no mistake, I am not a citizen of this country, not in the real sense. Does that make sense? We have to do that. And, oh my, claps, this is very Pentecostal. (laughs) I don't know what's going on here. What a church. Anyway, so, where was I? And why do we fall for it? Before I go to the final point, why do we fall for this? Why is it so easy for us to slip there? And listen, I'm as guilty, I'm not picking on anybody. The reason is because we're weak, and we want burdens to be relieved. We want life to be easier. Uh, You've probably read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, everybody's read. If you haven't, please do, wonderful book. And in it, there's a a character named Christian, and he is on his way to the celestial city. He's on his way to God. It's a very unveiled uh, allegory. And as he's traveling, he has this big burden on his back. It's a backpack. But it represents his sin, his guilt, everything that only God can take off. But as he's traveling, it's obviously a burden to walk with that on his back. So he's having all sorts of trouble. He falls into the slough of the spawn, this swamp. And at one point, he's, he's struggling so much, he meets a man on the road called Worldly Wise Man. And the worldly wise man says, what are you doing? The way you're going to the celestial city, I have a better path. It's much easier, it's not as difficult, and you'll find at the end of it a guy who can help you take that burden off your back. Christian goes, because he thinks, boy, I would love to have this thing off my back sooner rather than later. But as he's going to this place, he finds Oh, you won't get this, I guess it just conked out. I'll read it. He finds Evangelist, the guy who first told him about Christ. And now the evangelist says, what are you doing on this road instead of that road? And here's what Christian says. Let me read it. He, meaning worldly wise man, bid me with speed get rid of my burden. And I told him it was ease that I sought. And said I, I am therefore going to yonder gate to receive further direction how I might get to the place of deliverance. So he said that he would show me a better way and short, not so attended with difficulties as the way you, sir, showed me. Which, uh, which may he said, direct me and will direct me to a gentleman's house that hath the skill to take off these burdens. So I believed him, and I turned away, out out of the way and into this one, if I might be ease of my burden sooner. And Christian is exactly like us. We know there's a burden. We know life is difficult. It's hard, and there's certain there's always going to be an easier path offered to us, and the state will offer that. Right? Play the game. Talk about gender the way we talk about it. Talk about life the way we do, and it'll be easier. You could stay open, no no worries about what you preach or what you believe, where you go to school, where you work. And we have to be very clearly aware of this. The first beast has power over our body. The second beast has power over our minds. In that case, how do we persevere? How do we persevere in a place where the state and the propaganda are worked against us? Well, this is the final point. Perseverance. And here's where we get to the 666 number, believe it or not. Here's the hope. We've all been confused for centuries about this, and I think we've misunderstood the hope that is found in the number 666. Let me explain. How do we get to the number 666? There is no doubt that what John is seeing here is something called gematria. Okay? Gematria or gematria. This is this ancient way of taking the letters of the alphabet and assigning numbers, numerical values to each one. And then you take those numbers and you figure out what the number of somebody's name is. And this is common. We know he's talking about this because you see graffiti all over the ancient world's walls. In fact, in Pompeii, there's one that says, I love her whose number is 545. We were sappy guys even then, right? (laughs) And we wrote, and and see, uh, well, we'll put this up on the wall. Look, if you take Pastor Carl, I am number 645, almost. Almost 666. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but you see, there's something, we do this all the time, and there's no doubt he's talking about that, but you see, if I take your name and try to figure out the number, it's easy. But if you just give me a number and say, figure out the name, that's a lot harder, because there's a lot of things that add up to this. In fact, over history, there's been dozens, and we'll put a picture up of various people. So Martin Luther, Nero, Henry Kissinger, Mark 666, Saddam Hussein. Ronald Reagan is my favorite, because... His number doesn't equal 666, but because he has three names, Ronald, Wilson, Reagan, and all three have six numbers, he's 666. See, is this what we're asked to do? Is this the point that we're supposed to take this number and start doing mathematical tricks? Because then we have problems, serious problems that no one tells you about. There's three, at least three. One, what language should you use? Hebrew, Greek, Latin, English? I used English for Pastor Carl. And the reason I put Pastor Carl is a second problem. In order to make Nero fit, you have to use Nero Caesar, his title. You see, then you have gymnastics. It's not just Hitler. You have to have Adolf, not even Adolf. It's like Chancellor Hitler or whatever. Like you have to start doing gymnastics to make it fit. And then sometimes you even see them playing with the spelling and saying, well, this is a silent letter, so get rid of it. Doesn't count. So I'm sorry. This isn't what we're called to do. Instead, As we've been doing throughout Revelations, we see these numbers symbolically. And when you do, it not only becomes easier, but you see what the Bible is saying all through. So think about the number. Seven is the perfect number, complete, right? You've seen that all through Revelation. Six, however, is one less than that, which is incomplete. And you don't need me to tell you, not only do the rabbis say this all through Jewish history, but the earth is created in seven days, not six. It's six, but it's not complete until the seventh, right? Pretty straightforward. There's seven seals, bowls, trumpets. They're only completed at seven. If you end at six, you don't have peace and resolution. You have destruction. It goes much further. How many spirits make up the Holy Spirit? Seven. How many heads does the lamb have? Seven. Horns? Seven. Eyes? Seven. It goes on and on. In fact, Christ was killed on the sixth day at the sixth hour. See, there's something about it being incomplete, and we've talked before about how when you triple the number, remember? There's no emphasis, well, there is, but not much in, in Hebrew and Greek. So, only thing that's ever referred to with three of the same word is God. He is holy, holy, holy. Everything else is pure gold, is gold, gold, twice. Joseph's pit that he gets thrown into is a pit pit, two times. When Jesus looks at Martha or Mary, Mary, Mary. The only thing that's ever tripled is holy, holy, holy of God and this number, which means that he is completely incomplete. Whoever this beast is, he falls short continually. In fact, look at the fact that it says that he's mortally wounded, but he lives again. Notice it doesn't say he's resurrected. Why? Because if you're resurrected, you're born imperishable, you never die again. But Lazarus will live again. So this beast, for all his power, will die again. He's not resurrected. There's a sense all through the book of Revelation where you see this great power of the dragon and this unholy trinity, but he can't quite accomplish what he wants to. He's incapable of doing it. He can't because he's 666, not 777. Interestingly, if you take the Greek for Jesus, it comes out to 888. One better than seven. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? So, if this is the case then we need to see that our hope and perseverance is found in the fact that we need to know that the enemy cannot win. And let me offer very practical advice, because I think this sent, this calls for it, I've hammered a lot of things today. Four very, very, very fast things. First one, you, must, you and I must have a healthy suspicion of political institutions. We must. Because all of them tend, will trend towards blasphemy. All of them. Because they eventually, like Adam and Eve in the garden, will slip out. From under God, so always have a, whole, a suspicion of the governments, um, and recoil when you feel yourself wanting to support a government over a believer. Recoil. You should immediately say, "It's not a good sign." Okay. Second thing, and they're all up there, but is a healthy suspicion of the miraculous. This beast will be able to do miracles. The Egyptians, when Moses was doing the the plagues, performed miracles. So we need to be understanding that this is not the miraculous, the spectacular is not the sole property of God. Okay, so we don't get tricked by these things. And the key is to ask, what is the origin of this sign and what is it pointing to? Because if it is of God, it will always point to Christ, and it will point to binding His people to Him, not to anyone else or anything else. So ask that question. If, If gold dust falls from the sky, like in Toronto a few years back, and you get gold teeth in your mouth, the question is, why? To what end? How does this glorify God? Right? We have to ask those questions. Second one, healthy suspicion of religion, yours and the church. So, be suspicious of anything that calls you to trust a party, system, or anything over Christ. An example, again, is these ones I pointed to. Your religion is just as fallible, so is mine, which is why my job is to spend a lot of time in the Word of God, constantly and always listening to people smarter than me, listening to my peers to try to hold me straight as I possibly can. And you should be doing the same, because how else will you know the voice? How else will you know? I'll tell you, if my wife was in this room, I would know because I'd smell her. I would. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. (laughs) I would know when she's in a room because of what she does, how she decorates it, how she thinks, all these things come out. When you're near enough to God, you know Him. And this is that last part. We need to be healthy preoccupation with Christ. And this comes through not in any mystical ways. It comes through very simply. You read your Bible and study it deeply. You pray. You have community amongst the saints who sharpen you. You serve and you adore Christ. Always be doing that. Until you've done enough of that, you're going to be easily fooled by the counterfeit. I've told you the story when I was at TD Bank as a kid working, and I wanted to learn, I wanted to see counterfeit money so badly. But they wouldn't. They said, if you want to know how to see counterfeit money, know what the real money looks like. And I was very sad. I wanted to see the counterfeit. But instead they said, no, if you know what the real one looks like, you'll smell the fake. That's what we do. We pour into community. We pour into the Bible. And then we go out into the world. Not before. And this is where I'll really close. Martin Luther had this, he wrote a letter to a friend of his who was under a threat of persecution from a king during the Reformation. And it sounds harsh, but let me, I'll explain it. Here's what he wrote. Why do you fear and worry? Be of good courage. Let your heart be strengthened. Do not overestimate that water bag who does not know whether tomorrow he will be a king or a worm. We shall reign forever with Christ. They will burn in hell with the devil. Now, understand Martin Luther, first of all, if you know him, that's pretty consistent. But as harsh as it may sound, it's an important reminder that the only reason we will reign forever with Christ is because he endured hell that we deserved. And we need to always be aware of that. The gospel persuades us by the sacrifice. When we look at the gospel, we're persuaded. And then by the power of the Spirit, we are able to persevere and meet our Father. And so we submit only to the power and persuasion of the gospel, nothing else. That's our job. We're persuaded by the Son, powered by the Spirit, and preserved for the Father. And with that, let's end.